I wonder if it fits well with you. So here's the question I think we need to wrestle with, and we're going to wrestle with today. What makes it well? What is it that enables us to celebrate the peace in our soul? Father, we're thankful that it can be well through Jesus Christ. We're thankful that your vision for our lives is the peace that passes all understanding, but we also recognize, Lord, that sometimes it eludes us. So I pray, Father, today that we will spend time before you, be still before you and in your presence, have the courage to evaluate the wellness of our souls. And Lord, by your Spirit, I pray that you would reveal to us ways that we can cooperate with your vision to know your peace. It's in the strong name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. You may be seated. You, you guys know, no doubt, if you've been around church very long, or maybe not even been around church, but there's a, the most famous sermon Jesus ever preached was the Sermon on the Mount. But do you know about the Sermon on the Plateau? Do you know about that one? It's actually found in the book of Luke, and it's sort of the Reader's Digest condensed version of the Sermon on the Mount. It was given to a different group of people at a different time, and yet what Jesus did was sort of repackage the Sermon on the Mount, leaving some things out, but sending some very important messages, obviously. And they both actually end the same way. They end with the parable of the wise and the foolish builders. And if, if you recall, that parable was really about the way their houses were built. Were they built to sustain, to withstand a storm, or were they built to collapse? Now, there are a few subtle differences. And by the way, we're going to read from the sermon on the plateau, but there are a few subtle differences between the two endings regarding the wise and the foolish builder. But the one that jumps out in the sermon on the plateau, plateau, Jesus actually subtly reveals the intent of the storm. Now, I want you to turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 6, Luke chapter 6, and we're going to read this telling of the parable. Luke chapter 6, begin, we're going to begin in verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Now, by the way, that's a compelling question. Jesus' assumption is that if you call him Lord, Lord, you will do what he says. So why do you call me Lord, Lord, and yet do not do what I say? As for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, I will show you what they are like, what those people are like, what their lives are like. They are like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck that house but could not shake it, but could not shake it. 
Why? Because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. Now, recognize that the storm came with nefarious intent. It came to shake the house. That was the storm's objective. It came to shake the house. One house succumbed to the shaking, and the other one stood its ground. Now, the message of Jesus' parable is oh so simple. The storms of life, they test us. This is indisputable. Storms of life, trials of life, test us. But if we have built our lives on the solid rock, on the unassailable truth of Jesus' teaching, on God's word, then what Jesus says is we will stand firm. However, if we choose to ignore his truth, then we will be shaken. The intent of the storm is to shake. Now, usually, when we tackle series like this, we, we would be leaning into the truth that says we are free to flourish. If we trust Jesus, we are going to stand. And so we would call that series Unshaken. That's what Jesus implies when he says that we are submitting to his will. When we are submitting to him as Lord, we will be unshaken. But I've chosen to call this series Shaken because it rightly defines the condition of the church today and, by the way, the condition of most Christians. We are shaken. Now, we know this is not what Jesus wants. Okay, his vision for the church, which, by the way, the church is comprised of people who believe in Jesus. That's what the church is. We believe in Jesus, that he's the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus' vision for that group of people is that we would be on the offensive. That we would not be the ones shaken, but that we would be the ones doing the shaking. That's God's vision for his church. Now, if you doubt that, we need to pay heed to a conversation that Jesus had with his disciples in Matthew chapter 16. So, if you want to hold your spot in Luke chapter 6, turn back to Matthew chapter 16, and I want to drop in on this conversation because Jesus actually gives us his vision for what our thriving lives should be like. Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, well, you know, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And Jesus said, but, but what about you? Who do you say I am? Well, Simon Peter answered, you're the Messiah, 
the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. God leads us to the conclusion that Jesus is the Son of God. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth, and by the way, this is y'all. He's talking to the disciples. I will give y'all the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, listen, people want to make this about Peter, but it is much less about Peter than it is Peter's confession. Okay, his confession was that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that confession, Jesus says, is the rock, the foundation of his church. It is the rock on which we build if we live by it. If we live by it. You remember what Jesus said as he started Luke 6, 46? He said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Jesus operated under the logical assumption that if you confess, if I confess that Christ is Lord, that I will live like it. If you confess that Jesus is Lord, you should live like it. The church is the group of people who should be living as if Christ is Lord. And what does that look like? It looks like we are building our lives on the strong foundation of his teaching. That's what it means when Christ is your Lord. So if you call him Lord, you can check to see if he is by examining, we can check by examining to how we live our lives. Are we living our lives by his teaching? And so Jesus in that passage of Scripture also says, look, this is what I envision my church is going to be about. This is what it will look like if all of you are living on the firm foundation of my teaching. His words to Peter that day paint the picture with crystal clarity. Look at verses 18 and 19 of Matthew 16. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. What in the world... Does all that mean? It simply means that Christ envisions the church being on the offensive. Not being offensive, we speak the truth in love. But being on the offensive, advancing against the forces of darkness with the light of truth. And how do we do that? By binding up that which steals, kills, and destroys the storms of life that seek to rob people of life, and 
we bind those up and we loose or unleash that which gives hope and life. We unleash the love of God, the mercy of God, the compassion of God, and the truth of God. A firm foundation upon which any life can be built. And here's the promise that Jesus makes. The gates of hell will not be able to withstand the forward march of the church that is living under the lordship of Christ. It's a promise. Light always displaces darkness. Always. Darkness flees when the light is on. And when we are built on the firm foundation of the truth, our lights are shining and nothing, no darkness can withstand it. We will overcome and God's kingdom will come on earth just as it is in heaven. What we loose here will be loose there. What we bind here will be bound there. God's kingdom coming on earth. That's the promise for the church, which means it is the promise for your life and it is the promise for our collective lives. The light will shine victoriously if we are built on the foundation of belief that Jesus is Lord and anchored to that foundation by doing what? Exactly what he says. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and yet you do Choose not to do what I tell you to do. In other words, that can't be. It's a logical impossibility. Now, if that were the current state of affairs, if we were built and anchored to the firm foundation of Jesus' teaching, I would call this series unshaken. But that is not the current state of affairs. What happens to us when Jesus' vision is not our reality? What happens when the light is not shining because the people who are called and equipped to be the light are hiding it? When the light goes off, the darkness spreads. And with it, the storms that leave us shaken. That's where we are. It's exactly where we are. The storm of secularism has left us shaken. We are no longer on the gracious offensive, pushing out the darkness with the light of truth. Now, hear me. It's not that the truth is no longer effective. It's that the teaching of Jesus is no longer trusted or applied. The truth will always be effective. The truth will always set us free. But it must be trusted and applied. See, the church is no longer today in the United States standing firm because the truth is no longer our foundation. Now that's a pretty strong accusation. 
But let me tell you, the fact that we are shaken is not just a gut feeling I have. The numbers bear it out. And I'm going to share some of them with you today because just as, as we begin this series, I think it's important for us to all recognize the truth where we are. According to Pew Research data, the Pew Research Center, data shows that 65% of Americans self-identify as Christians, followers of Jesus. 65%. That sounds pretty good, right? It's a pretty strong majority. But 12 years ago, 12 years ago, same study, they found the number to be 77%. So 12 years ago, 77%. Today, 65%. Can I tell you what that means? That means that in 12 years, over 40,134,000 people have abandoned the faith. 40 million. Now let me just put that into perspective. That is the entire state of California plus the general Tampa Bay area abandoning the faith. That's staggering. And it shows that we are shaken. with 40 million people walking away, can we claim that we are keeping darkness at bay? Sadly, for us, the numbers get worse. How much worse could it be? More important than the people who self-identify as Christians, because many of them, by the way, would say, I'm a Christian, but I believe in reincarnation. So there's all kinds of issues with just self-identifying. So more staggering than the people who self-identify as Christians walking away would be the number of people who actually have a biblical worldview. Now, that, that's the phrase that we use to identify people who hold to Christ's teaching. Okay, those who actually dig down, find the rock, and build their life on it. While different pollsters use different ways uh, to identify the biblical worldview, the data shows that some, listen to this, somewhere between 6% and 10% of Americans have a biblical worldview. Now, I want you to think about that. What it means is that in the past 12 years, more people have walked away from the faith than there are people today who actually cling to the faith. By a factor of 7 million, by the way. About 34 million people in these United States live with a biblical worldview. When you dive deeper into the numbers, the Barna Group discovered that only 17% of Christians who consider their faith to be important and attend church, by the way, that's probably all of us, 
So what the numbers show, 17% of us consistently hold to a biblical worldview. 17 out of 100. Now to be clear, that's not 17% of Americans. It's 17% of people who claim to call Jesus Lord. Now, a good question to ask right now would be, well, gosh, what are they, how do they define a biblical worldview? Right? What's the, like, what's the criteria? Well, I'm going to share it with you. For purposes of their research, the Barna Group, who, along with Pew, they're the leading lights in investigating all things religious in the United States and are trustworthy. They've identified six statements that a person with a biblical worldview will agree to. Now, here's what, they're not, we're not going to pull it up yet, but here's, here's what I'm going to do. This is very unusual. What we're going to do is I'm going to read those six statements. You're going to see them on the screen, and I want you to see if you agree to this statement, these statements, or disagree with them. Because here's the you could be, you would be in these numbers. We're doing the survey right now. Number one, absolute moral truth exists. Agree or disagree? Absolute moral truth exists. Number two, the Bible is totally accurate in all the principles it teaches. Number three, Satan is a real being or force not merely symbolic. Number four, a person cannot earn their way to heaven by trying to be good or doing good works. Number five, Jesus lived a sinless life on earth. And number six, God is the all-knowing, all-powerful creator of the world who still rules the universe today. Now, that's how they measure it. And if you're thinking critically, you're probably going, wow, they left some stuff out. That's a really broad definition of what it means to have a biblical worldview. If you think about it, there's nothing in there about the resurrection. There's nothing in there about miracles, the virgin birth, or the second coming of Christ. But even as broad as it is, what they find is that only 17% of people who attend church regularly agree to those six statements. We are shaken. That's not a hard list to agree with. Now there's one more question worth addressing. Really important because if you think critically about the history of the way the church in America has unfolded now, we, we began to change everything for the young people so that we, we don't lose any. And the target group, it was the group called the Millennials. So how are we doing with the Millennials? 40% of Millennials, and that, by the way, is people between the ages of 27 and 42, 40% of American millennials identify as atheist, agnostic, or nothing in particular. 40 out of 100 
And by the way, the numbers go up as the age goes down. So the younger they get, the less they believe. What does all this mean? Well, there are two obvious conclusions that we must draw. First, we can conclude that people are moving at a rapid clip away from the sacred or the biblical worldview and toward the secular worldview. Remember, the secular is the storm. At a rapid clip, 40 million in 12 years. By the way, the research also shows that people that are leaving the Christian faith are not being converted to something else. They're just out. Claiming now to be atheist, agnostic, or just nothing. Secularism on the march. Second, it means that we had better figure out what we need to do to stop the bleeding. Stop the storm. Jesus said, we read it, the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. That the houses of those who follow his teaching would stand in the face of the storm. But is that happening? The tide of secularism is rising and our house is being shaken. And our influence is crumbling. So what do we do about it? The first thing we have to do is understand the storm. How it behaves. What it's doing. The storm that is doing the most damage to our influence and witness. To our belief. Is the storm of secularism. By the way, it's also doing the most damage to our society. So what is secularism? I'll give you the answer. Strictly speaking, secular is irreligious. It is the absence of religiosity. Now, it's the exact opposite of being religious. If you are secular, you are not religious. Now, I know, I know, I know, we've been for years running from the label of religious, right? Well, maybe that's part of the problem. Maybe. Why? Because what does it mean to be religious? Being religious simply means that we define reality. Now, this, by the way, is the, the um, scientific or the outside the Christian faith definition of religious, okay? So I'm going to get to our definition, but here's the, here's the world's definition of being religious. It is understood to mean that we define reality based upon the existence and authority of a God or gods. Okay, we understand reality and based upon the belief in a God or God, so that would have authority over us. Okay, the religious believe that they live life under the authority of a being or beings that are outside themselves. Okay, so truth 
or expectations. The standard comes from without. That's what it means to be religious. There is some supernatural power that influences, that has authority and influences our decision making. The goal of the religious is to please the God or gods who have that authority because those gods or that God defines what is good and what is bad and therefore determines what we should do and what we should not do. Now, how does that apply to Christians? For those of us with a biblical worldview, we live under the authority of the God that is revealed in Scripture. We believe that Jesus is Lord, and we live to please Him by following His teachings regarding our life choices. We have chosen to dig deep and build our lives on the rock of His truth. Now, the secular person who is irreligious may believe in a higher power or spirit, but they do not believe that power has any authority over them. So the worldview of the secular is that authority does not come from without, it comes from within. Now this is really, really important to understand. It comes from within. Which means that in their worldview, the authority is the self. The self. I call the shots. Practically speaking, the goal of the secularist is absolutely no different from the goal of the religious person. They still want to please the authority. But who is the authority? It is the self. Therefore, the secularist lives to please themselves. This mindset has given birth and momentum to the concept of individual truth. Because we are our own authorities, we get to determine what truth is. That's what the secularist believes. And a perfect example of this, and I'm not going to go there today, but we're going to, just for a second. I could go there right now, but I'm not going to. The perfect example of this is the crazy notion of gender fluidity. Do, or, like, are, do you all understand what that is? No longer is gender revealed... No longer do we find out what gender we are when we're born or by the pictures. What they say is the way we have always done it is that it's assigned. But now, because truth is determined by the individual, now gender is discovered. Just as you go, you can figure it out. You, you get to pick what you are, and it can be different today than it is tomorrow. It's the craziest thing. But that's what happens... That's what happens when truth is determined by the individual. That's not the only example, but that's the only one I'm going to talk about right now. It doesn't make any sense. But it's happening. Pick a pronoun. That's where that... That, that's where that comes from. There's no truth. 
Now, in her brilliant book, Faithfully Different, Natasha Crane points out where this belief in the authority of the self has led. Okay? She sums it all up by listing four main tenets of the secular worldview. Now, remember, these tenets come from the conviction that the self is the true authority. So what are the tenets? This is the foundation of secularism, four of them. Feelings are the ultimate guide. Happiness is the ultimate goal. Judging is the ultimate sin. And God is the ultimate guess. Okay, let me say those again. Feelings are the ultimate guide. Happiness is the ultimate goal. Judging is the ultimate sin. And God is the ultimate guess. So let's just talk about those very briefly. With feelings as the ultimate guide, the secularist is free to follow their hearts. You you just look within. How do you feel? Go with it. That's the most important thing. You know how you feel. No one else can tell you how you feel. So you be your guide. To do otherwise in secularism would would be to live a false life. You're not being you because you're not following your feelings. So feelings are the ultimate guide. Second, happiness is the ultimate goal. Happiness is the assumed goal of life. Since the secularist is his or her own authority, they get to determine what will make them happiest based upon the way they feel. See, number one, to achieve happiness, according to your definition, is to achieve success in life. There's one thing, everybody, everybody just can do what they want to do, but there's one thing the secularist cannot abide by, cannot tolerate, and that is judgment. Okay, everyone must be free to follow their feelings and achieve their own happiness. Unless, of course, you are religious. So everybody but those of us who cling to a biblical worldview. Why is that? Why are we the exclusion? Because we have committed the unpardonable sin of secularism, which is to claim to be able to judge the difference between right and wrong. That's the problem. Because we believe it comes from outside us. We believe there's an absolute moral truth. It's part of the biblical worldview. So since it comes from outside us, there is a standard that we should all live up to. And since we believe all, and including a society, should live up to this standard, we get all judgy. And that's the unpardonable sin. Belief in absolute truth or an outside authority leads to judgment. Number four, they say God is the ultimate guess. What, what, what does that mean? Remember, belief in the supernatural is fine as long as the supernatural doesn't require anything of you or of somebody else. So if you feel there's some sort of higher power good for you, just don't inflict your feelings on someone else. You can believe. You just have to keep your beliefs to yourself. And the church today said, okay, no problem. We'll, we'll go for that one. We'll just keep it quiet. We'll just hide our light. Now, why are we talking about this? Because we've been shaken by secularism. And we are following its lead, 
rather than pushing it back. We're shaken. Christians today are more prone to check their feelings about an issue than the scripture. We talk about happiness, our happiness, and the happiness of others. That's the sacrificial part. We also supposedly care about someone else's happiness. But we talk about happiness as if it's the goal. As if happiness is the life that Christ died for us to live. When you're more likely to consult your feelings when you're faced with a decision, when you're more likely to consult whether it will make you happy or not, then you are the Bible. Then happiness is your ultimate goal too, right? Or mine. I think it would be safe to say that a majority of us are more into happiness than holiness. Secular creep. We are shaken. As it relates to judging, we're more likely to take the secularist perspective that it's, it's an unpardonable sin that's always harmful rather than embracing the Bible's perspective that teaches us that in wisdom, judging has its place. Did you know that? That's one we're going to talk about later in the series. Now, we may not buy in totally to God as the ultimate guess, but I think we do have a tendency to remake him in an image that makes us feel better about him. What do I mean by that? Well, there's some things he tells us to do that we don't like. And we, we do like the love part, but we're not real sure about the wrath part. And so today people talking about, they're, they're, in the church they're talking about unhitching the Old Testament from the New Testament. What? Why? Because we don't really like the, like the God we find in the Old Testament. Now listen, our shakiness in the face of secularism has contributed to the quote-unquote deconversion of 40 million believers. Why? Because they're seeking answers. They're looking to find what the truth is, and we don't have the courage to stand on the truth that is revealed in Scripture. We, we probably know better than God on some of these issues anyway, don't we? I mean, some of those ideas are really old. There are just some things that surely have changed. Why do we have the idea that these things have changed? Because we're submitting to secularism. We haven't decided that we're going to dig down and live on the rock of God's truth. 
We aren't confronting the lies of secularism with grace and humility, but confidence in the truth because we are falling for them. And we're shaken. And we're losing our influence. And the darkness is advancing. And by the way, we're losing the ones we love too. For the next few weeks, we're going to identify some of those beliefs that are most diluted or compromised by secularism in the church. And we're going to talk about some of the lies that we believe and at least dig down enough to find out what the rock of the truth is. And when we're done, you may say, yeah, I'm, I'm not buying it. That, that's up to you. But just know that Jesus said, if you call me Lord, you'll do what I say. And you'll trust what I've said. Whether it feels good or makes you happy or not. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 1 says this. We must pay the most careful attention. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. What have we heard? He's talking to believers. What have we heard? We have heard the truth about Jesus Christ. That he is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. What we have heard is that he is the way, the truth, and the life. That no man comes to the Father but by him. And if we choose to trust what we have heard, we can build our lives on the rock of that foundation. And we will not be shaken. Now, let me just point out an obvious truth. You may self-identify as a Christian, but that doesn't make you one. The fact of the matter is that some of these folks who are re rejecting that self-identification weren't really followers of Jesus to begin with. He wasn't Lord of their lives. They certainly weren't trusting what he said. They obviously hadn't come to the place where they were trusting him for abundant life here and eternal life there. 
Because here's what I know. When you've been enveloped by the grace of God, you're not going to let it go. Yours not. And then when, when you receive the gift of life by his grace through your faith, then the next step is to dig in, dig down, find the rock, build your life. Now, not everybody gets there. But here's, a logical, here's the logical assumption that Jesus made. If he's your Lord, you will. You will. It only makes sense, right? I believe in Jesus, therefore I follow Jesus. Following is the natural byproduct of believing. Now, following doesn't get you to heaven. Jesus does. We've sung about and celebrated that fact today. So if you're not a believer, if you're, if you're sitting thinking, well, I'm, I'm, I don't think so. I think I'm, I think I'm out. The question is, how do you get in? It's placing your faith in the good news of Jesus Christ. Here's the good news. He knew we were going to struggle with sin. He knew we were going to be swamped by the storms of life. He knew that we were going to be obsessed with ourselves and therefore we would always be separated from God. So he decided to come to earth, to live a perfect life on our behalf, to die on the cross on our behalf, to be buried and then be raised from the dead so we could find life. That's the good news. We are forgiven by the finished work of Jesus Christ. And that's the finished work. Died on the cross, raised from the dead. Now, if you believe that, then that makes you a believer. You are connected with God. The question I want you to wrestle with is, do you live it? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and yet you don't do what I say? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and yet follow the teachings of secularism? Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, we're thankful for the truth that anchors our lives and sets us free. I pray, Lord, that today by your Spirit, for those who are not followers of Jesus, that today you would draw them close and help them see and understand the depth of your love, mercy, and compassion, the way you showed that love by sending Jesus to die for all of us so we could be forgiven for our sins and connected with you. Lord, by your grace and in the power of your Holy Spirit, grant them faith to trust Jesus. And Father, for those of us who have, I pray that you would give us the wisdom to build our life on the rock of Jesus' truth. Lord, we'll confess that we are somewhat shaken 
we're concerned about standing up for the truth because, because we know that we'll be rejected. But Father, help us remember that you were too, that Jesus was. We want to stand on the truth so our lights will shine. Give us the wisdom and the courage to do so. In Christ's name I pray.